Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an M.A. from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a Ph.D. from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima, On Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Even that sacred space, that place that the church, which the mystical body brings forward, that space that we enter into has been prepared. It's not as though the construction workers just put up the bricks and put up the walls and by their own work and how they come to it, that's important too. But it is actually anointed with the same oils that anoint us. It is actually sprinkled and water poured out onto it. I mean, all the actions that occur there, that has been consecrated to run around in your tennis shoes and to treat it. I know this is going to sound very alarming, but it's like running. You might as well run over, lay the Christians out and run on top of them. It's a lack of an appreciation of the life of the Trinity that occurs in this space. I'm going to slip in a quote from the Jewish author Abraham Heschel, little book about the Sabbath, he writes, the higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information. Uh, that's bad news for me, <laughs> a college professor, and mm-hmm. I want to persuade my students that the most important thing in their life is to amass a wealth of information, but I'm sorry, the very topic I teach them says that's not the case. It's not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. The higher goal of spiritual living is to face sacred moments. We must not forget that it is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It's the moment that lends significance to things. Judaism is a religion of time aiming at the sanctification of time. And every hour is unique and the only one given at the moment, exclusive and endlessly precious. Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness in time. And he who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce and of being yoked to toil. That's not wrong, as he's about to say, but it's something that you must lay down. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. I read that line a long time ago, and I'm still thinking about what he means by embezzling our own life. I guess it's a deposit God has given, and I'm stealing funds out of it for myself. He must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, bringing profit from the earth. That's a good thing. We're commanded to do that by God. But on the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Mm. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world, and on the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. My only quibble with him would be to say, probably 
for the seven days we must seek to dominate ourselves, this is when we practice our asceticism, mm -hmm. so that we could do full, active, and conscious, joyful uh, liturgy on the Sabbath, Sunday, eighth day. Six days a week, we have to make that struggle so that we could do our liturgy properly. And what's the right relationship between that and liturgical mysticism then? thought I would write a book on liturgical asceticism and then write a book on liturgical mysticism so I could find out. But I finished them both and I'm not sure that I'm done with it yet. Uh, I like the key you gave in our earlier conversation that I don't need to try to come up with a liturgical bridge to asceticism and then another liturgical bridge to mysticism. Liturgy is the bridge between those two. Mm. Huh? So if I walk the bridge of liturgy... I'll find on the east end and the west end, the north end and the south end of this bridge, both of them. I tend, I know that mysticism awaits us at the end of asceticism as I understood it from the uh, tradition. And in that book, I primarily dealt with uh, Eastern and Orthodox material. I understand mysticism to be at the end of it. Because one goes through these stages of um, practice, physique, and theologia in order to arrive, theologia is union with God. Well, what better definition of mysticism do I need? Uh, mysticism must surely have some requirements of us and efforts of us. Well, yeah. Mysticism assumes asceticism. Asceticism assumes mysticism. But if the uh, emphasis is on a different syllable, it seems like one of them starts with the uh, efforts required, ascesis, training, discipline, effort, and arrives at the mystery. And the other starts with the mystery, but acknowledges that the purgation and illumination will precede this unification. I think they're related. And I've got a number of metaphors for the relationship, but I don't think enough of them yet, and I'm not entirely happy. It, it, it just struck me when, as you were speaking that that image that we referred to earlier in the conversation about the tornado, of how it pinned all the way to the point right into the human heart, that it's that constant turning of what the West will say is the purgation, illumination, union, and all the, all the mystics will tell you that you never stay static on one spot. You're just constantly moving, and it gets bigger and bigger. That That's what happens at the Mass every time we pray. It's the purgation in the beginning, and then the illumination and the Word and all that is broken open for us. Then there's that union. But the whole world is created in that, and it just keeps moving. And I... I think that mysticism, sometimes when we attribute it only to the person who has reached union by the images of the West, the purgation, illumination, union, and union is where you're going to find the mystics. Yeah, phew, I made it. Yeah, wow. And then, but then all of them would say, you can fall back again. Even Paul says, it's a running of a race. You got to keep going. I think that Praetikia, understanding that and the Physikia and the Theologica, if that could be broken open more, I think that speaks, even in Greek, I think the everyday layperson could understand that experience in their lives. 
uh, the tradition will speak of these as stages. It's natural for us to speak of them as stages, but um, it's not a stage where you leave number one behind when you reach number two, you leave number two behind when you reach number three. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think in my mind of an illustration where that's the case. Um, clothing, you're, uh, you finally get a uh, size 10 shoe, so you leave behind your size uh, four shoe. It's stages like Kierkegaard spoke of places where you stage your life. It's a stage on which you act out your life, theater imagery. It's a stage like um, my uh, grandkids are learning the alphabet now. We sing the alphabet song with them. Uh, and now when they're going to learn to write, we'll leave the alphabet behind. Uh, no, 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 no. The stage of learning the alphabet is the foundation for the stage of writing words, which is the foundation for the stage of writing paragraphs, which is foundation for stage of writing something with wisdom. Stages of that sort, they, uh, they compile, uh, they don't substitute. Uh, you, you want to speak about these three terms from the Eastern world, mm-hmm. the Greek world? Yes. It starts with the idea that human beings have certain uh, capacities or faculties for acting. Human beings can reason and think. Human beings desire and have appetites for things. And human beings can be stirred to um, feel profoundly. And they call these the intellective faculty, the concupiscible faculty, and the irascible faculty. They need the definition, don't they? Because for the West, concupiscible brings to mind Augustine's notion of concupiscence as the remainder leftovers of original sin. So we don't mean it that way. These, this is a uh, not only neutral, but a positive definition of a faculty. These are three faculties that God gave us. And irascible doesn't mean grumbling and arguing. It means a capability of uh, being moved in some way. Well, if we had, if the uh, intellective faculty rightly controlled the appetites and um, uh, emotion, then we would live in harmony. We'd have order within. And that's uh, Plato's notion that the uh, reason holds the reins as a charioteer upon two white steeds, the concupiscible and the irascible. But if the charioteer drops the reins, then the horses run away. And what would cause the charioteer to drop the reins is if he wasn't receiving instruction from God. If our intellective capacity was not under the rule of God, then our concupiscible and irascible faculties will not be under the rule of our intellect. Maximus, a confessor, says these um, three faculties are symbiotic. Oh, hey, I just saw the word perichoresis go by in my mind. The three faculties are symbiotic. They live together and they operate together in a person. And a healthy soul, a healthy soul, he says, is one that is moved reasonably when the concupiscible is qualified by self-mastery, when the irascible cleaves to love and turns away from hate, and when the rational lives with God through prayer and spiritual contemplation. Why, there's a kind of a spiritual contemplation, mystical, in the rational that controls, but an unhealthy state is one where passionate thoughts 
excite the concupiscible, disturb the irascible, and darken the rational element of the soul. Now that's our state of affairs. That's our problem. That's our fallen state. The consequence of, of original sin is that the uh, demons have a foothold in us. They can't make us do anything that we're not willing to do, that we don't will to do. But we cooperate with them because the um, passions have distorted us. So you see already that in the West, the word passion is used in a more neutral fashion. You could have a passion for art. But here in the Eastern language, uh, Eastern uh, Christian language, I didn't mean Eastern uh, Hindu language, this is all Christian, but the Eastern Church of Christianity, uh, passion is 97% of the time used to name a state where a faculty isn't working the way it's supposed to work. I picture a, a good faculty, a sinless faculty, such as Adam and Eve and Mary and Jesus had, I picture it to be a perfectly round bicycle wheel. And I picture a passion to be a dent in the wheel. If I had a hit a rock really hard, I might have to ride the rest of the way home. Galump, 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 it wouldn't be smooth. Well, our faculties don't operate in a smooth, rolling nature. Here's some Maximus descriptions or explanations of passions. A passion is a movement of the soul contrary to nature. We don't do nature naturally anymore. We do it wrong. As with everything, misuse is sin. There's nothing wrong with money, sex, or beer, but you can misuse them. The vices whether concupiscible, irascible, or rational, come upon us with the misuse of the faculties of the soul. And the abuse of things follow upon the mistaken use of thoughts, which is why I don't think right about this world, and therefore I abuse the world. Peter of Damascus beat me to my money, sex, and beer slogan. He writes, it's not food but gluttony that's bad. Not money, but attachment to it. Not speech, but idle talk. He means a kind of backbiting, gossipy talk. Not authority that's bad, but the love of authority. And not glory, but the love of glory. And what's worse, vainglory. It is not the thing itself, but its misuse that is evil. I don't think we quite pause long enough to grab that. It was uh, driven home to me in Thomas's book on evil. While I was reading it, I'd walk around campus with on evil in my hand. Uh, I didn't know what kind of homework people thought I was doing. And Thomas makes clear that no thing is evil, but we tend to do that. Cards are evil, alcohol is evil, sex is evil. No thing is evil, but anything could be used wrongly at the wrong time for the wrong reason, in the wrong way, with the wrong person, in the wrong degree, in the wrong amount. So it's a matter of justice. Those are the passions that need to be healed. And a man named Evagrius made a list of eight of them. And he organized them according to our faculties. The concupiscible passions are gluttony, lust, and avarice. The irascible passions are anger, despondency, and a kind of sloth he called achedia. It means getting lazy about uh, doing your spiritual duties before God. And the intellective passions are vainglory and pride. Those eight 
I like the um, main branches on the tree, which has then smaller twigs growing on them. And those eight, the idea of those eight, the list of that eight came to the West by Evagrius's pupil, Cassian, and they entered the Western tradition as the seven deadly sins, the seven vices. But they, these come from the homework that Evagrius did talking to monks in the deserts of Egypt. Well, how do you deal with the passions? That's the question you asked me. I was getting to it. Evagrius says three stages, but we've already said you don't leave a stage behind. Here's the alphabet, here's your grammar, and here's your uh, final sentence. The stages are divided into two groups. So I think of number one, and then of 2A and 2B. And the first group is an active, well, it's not a group, it's a group of one. The first is active life. It's purifying the passion part of the soul. And Evagrius calls this practice. It's to do battle with eight evil thoughts. It's to uh, work through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving against the grip of the passions within our lives. If passion is uh, pathé or pathane, then lack of passion was called in Greek apatheia, but I never permit my students to say the word apathy because it doesn't mean this kind of laziness. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to attain apatheia, which is a dispassion, overcoming the passions. And at the end of this struggle, except the struggle never ends, but the target towards which it's shooting is this apatheia, which gives birth to charity. And charity sets up the second and third stages, which compose the contemplative life. So here's the active and the contemplative. And the contemplative has two parts to it. The first, Evagrius calls physicae, which is a kind of physics. Uh, not like they do in the science building across the hall from, uh, across the quad from me, but it's a physics which investigates the world, the cosmos. Physicae is contemplating the cosmos in the light of revelation. Physicae is itself contemplation, even though it's thinking about the world, because it's thinking about the world beyond its appearances. You see the creator in the signs of his creatures. Physicae is a cosmology informed by scripture's revelation of God's providence. It's now knowing the world based on scripture and the order of the universe. But physica is not the end because that's knowing the works of the creator. Mm -hmm. Might we also know the creator himself? And we mean know him the way scripture says Abraham knew Sarah. This is an experiential knowledge. And this third stage is union with God, a supreme, calm, steady regarding of the Godhead as it is in itself. This third stage is participation in the life of the Trinity. It's union with God. And lo and behold, what name does Evagrius give this third stage? Theologia. This is theology. That's why Mrs. Murphy might be a theologian. 
even without an MA in secondary theology, she is a theologian if she has this participation in the life of the Trinity. Why, that sounds like a definition of liturgy that I heard recently. It's effortless, it's beatific, it reflects apatheia. Cassian knows that the uh, West won't understand the word apatheia, so he translates it as puritus cordis, purity of heart. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, they shall become theologians. So here's the uh, $64 quote from Evagrius summarizing in uh, tight form all of this. The fear of God strengthens faith. Continence in turn strengthens this fear. You have to deal with your sexuality and find chastity. Patience and hope make this virtue solid and beyond all shaking. And they also give birth to apatheia. Now, Apatheia has a child called Agape, who keeps the door to a deep knowledge of the created universe, and to this knowledge succeed theology and supreme beatitude. He's just described our battleground practice. But if you achieve a kind of dispassion so that you could see the world not selfishly, if I could see my neighbor not avariciously so i was jealous of his promotion if i could see my neighbor's wife not lustfully but um with a clean heart so that i could respect her as a person and not see her as an object if i had the passions under control i could see the world the physicae in a different light and to it would succeed theology it would be union with god it would be knowing what god has produced now Surely, union of God is mysticism. Surely, this ascetical tradition leads to theologia, which is mystical in nature. So you ask, how does asceticism and mysticism relate? And I say again, I'm not sure. I'm just enjoying the uh, perichoretic. You've seen uh, dogs chase their tail sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's me uh, moving in circles connecting this but it does also mean that if mrs murphy is an ascetic she is because she's on the road to being a mystic to having this beatific union this theology this theologia my work started 30 years ago trying to defend mrs murphy as a liturgical theologian and lo and behold that identity turns out to be participation in the life of the trinity which is a beatific union with god you know, it's remarkable. You can see it in so many different ways. I think you've even used that. It's like the facets of a diamond that yeah. in a marriage, the the great mystery is that the husband and the wife are brought together in union. And so the third person within the marriage that is experienced by the world because of that union is Christ. Yes, it's what makes this the uh, sacrament of the church. And a, the marriage is a sacrament, a visible sign and grace of what Christ and his church relationship is. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it was uh, the plan all along. Marriage before the fall. Marriage is the one sacrament that isn't a 
medicine for sin, but it existed in the Eden before there was sin. So Christ is returning the new Adam and the new Eve back to the state they should have been in. Again, in that sharing of the divine life, isn't that what they were called to? Isn't that why we're created? And I think to myself that I could even find room for asceticism in Eden if asceticism was keeping a sturdiness about yourself and not just putting out little um, forest fires have little spots here and there, right? Mm -hmm. So I know that our asceticism looks different. Our asceticism looks bloody and it's on the cross and it's dealing with sin. But I think I could even speak of an asceticism for Adam and Eve that would have been living in an upright, just manner. Well, that would be what the West means by this original justice. And in one liturgical, I've forgotten what exactly it was, I found in the Eastern liturgy books a reference that if Adam had kept his asceticism, we wouldn't have to be doing ours, meaning the way we are. Furthermore, I think I might make space for the sacred in the Garden of Eden. Wouldn't that be in the evening when God comes to share a glass of lemonade with them? All day long, they're doing their duty, their profane duty. They're naming animals and gardening and keeping track and ruling over. And now they set their tools down in order to have a sacred set aside. That's what Sansiri means, to set aside a moment. And what's the fall? They abandon the sacred moment. They hide themselves in the bushes. And so they can't do the world anyway, anymore the way it was meant to be done. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't know towards what end. They don't know who really rules this world. They think they rule it themselves, silly people. And you can't make a, a good sacrifice when you're hiding in the bushes. That's no location for a decent sacrifice to be uh, accomplished. We lost our capacity for holy sacrifice. So Christ has reconciled us to God, metanoia, evangelism, and put back in our hands the original capacities to worship God, to sacrificially offer to God, which he meant for the first Adam to have, but the first Adam failed it, and now the second Adam has returned it to our hands. Going to church is stepping into the Garden of Eden. Mm. No, no, it's higher. Because it's not going back to Eden, it's joining Christ in a step further up and further in. Its inside is bigger than its outside. Well, there's that ascension again. It is. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fackerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg.